Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am in New York City, recently returned from a trip around Europe, which was quite uh, lovely and interesting and relaxing. We may get to it. Um, also recently returned from Europe is Ed Luce, who was sunning himself on some island somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, hi, Ed. Yeah, I was sunning myself on an island not far from the island on which you were sunning yourself in Greece. Yes, well, <laughs> I was on several islands. Um, but but yes, um, that's uh, smart. I've never done that before, and I feel... Like I've made a terrible mistake in my life to have left it to, <laughs> Not too late. Left it to this point. There's so many islands. Um, but uh, <laughs> good, good to good to have you. Are you back in D.C. now? I am. I would advise next time, just winnow it down. Pick one island. Well, my wife has a very rigorous schedule, and she likes to climb as many um Difficult to reach peaks as possible, so it requires multiple <laughs> islands. Um, and uh, somewhere that could be Europe usually is Corey Shockey, but <laughs> rumor has it she's in an airport someplace. So where I am you, actually, I am actually on an island of sorts as well. I am on Rhode Island in Newport. There is nothing. That's very island. exotic. There's nothing <laughs> island about it Rhode is. Island. <laughs> but there's so much that's wonderful about Rhode Island, so I'm super happy to be here. It's a very interesting state. And my my research from my last book revealed that there was once a, 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 tree, a case of treason against Rhode Island that was quite controversial because the, the state for a while had two governments simultaneously uh, <laughs> in the middle of the 18th century. You probably are... You're probably there because of that, Corey. I know you love, I mean, 19th century. It was the middle of the 19th century that this all took place. Um, I am, in fact, here. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go on, please. I was going to say, I'm here to have an argument about France and the United States differing views of the Treaty of Versailles. So it's going to be super fun. That, that sounds like super fun. And I'm sure everybody out there in deep state radio land is going, that's my favorite argument. Um, and and Rosa Brooks is in seclusion someplace working on a book. But or can you give us a rough idea of uh, yes, where you I are, am. Rosa? Yes, I'm. I'm in um, what is called the Neck District of Dorchester County, Maryland. And um, the house I'm in is has a sign in front of it that says Duck Pond, even though it has neither ducks nor a pond. That's where I am. Well. It's in that sense, it's <laughs> just like where Corey is, which says it's an island, but it's not, not actually, an island. 
Not an island. Um, uh, okay, well, you know, there's so many things that have happened in the past couple of weeks while people were on vacation and there was Labor Day and, and uh, Ed was on just the right number of islands and I was on too many islands. Um, and, and so I'd just like to sort of play this as kind of a lightning round because we have limited amount of time and we want to get people sort of back to school ready for all of their cocktail party conversations about what's going on and in, in global affairs. Um, and let's start in the natural place here. Um, uh, Ed, uh, even as we are recording this podcast, crazy things are happening in the United Kingdom, not so United Kingdom. Uh, the, 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 I think Boris Johnson is, is setting the record for the most defeats in Parliament um, by a long shot, um, uh, uh, with four or five in his first few days in office. Um, and we look like sort of the end of today, which is Monday. He's going to prorogue as he promised he would, and then the parliament will be shut down until October 14th. Is that the way it looks, and why do we care? Uh, that That is the way it looks. I mean, he's trying to get an election, or as we were discussing before we went on air, the best tabloid headline of last week is Floppy Boris Just Cannot Get an Election. Um, uh, he's been trying to get two-thirds of Parliament, that's the House of Commons, <laughs> to, uh, to, to get him an, an election, and, um, and, and they're not behind this until they know that Brexit, has, the no-deal Brexit's been postponed, that the, the EU is given an extension. Um, quite how this shakes out, nobody knows, and um, what's most worrying about this, least of all Boris, he, he is flying blind. Um, and he's just doubled every time he loses money in to the house. He uh, he doubles his bet, um, and so I don't know where this is going to end up, except to say there's going to be there is going to be an election sometime um, in the next month or two months, um, and the opinion polls are all over the place. I would like to think, having watched Boris's beyond lamentable performance in the House of Commons last week. Um, and the way he treated 21 highly principled conservatives who knowingly ended their career the moment they voted for um, this request of an extension to the EU, and the way he treated them by, you know, sort of instantly guillotining them from, from the party. Um, I would like to think that he would now be suffering at the polls, but I'm, I'm unsurprised and rather disturbed to see that um, some of the polls show him actually increasing the Conservative Party's lead um, over Labour, and you know that's a whole other subject, um, the condition of the Labour Party. But uh, it, it's not apparent that Boris is going to fail, even though he's failing abysmally before our, our, our eyes all the time. Well, let me ask you one more question before I uh, turn to our other guests for takes on this. Um, because you're a product of the British... Um, uh, educational system uh, and British culture. One of the things that struck me while I was away was this picture of Jacob Rees-Mogg slouching on a bench in Congress, looking like he was about to drift off to sleep or um, something. And 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 I thought that had I seen that, had I been there, I would have immediately renounced my British citizenship. Um, and I was wondering if you had done so. No, um, but I was sorely tempted. I mean, if, if that man's 
worldview which drips with sort of latter-day aristocratic contempt and yet pretends it's the people. I mean, just, just remember the outrage of this, is that they're going to go, whenever this election happens, the likes of Rhys Mogg and Boris Johnson, with their background, their privilege, their good fortune, are going to, to campaign on the basis of they are the people and they are campaigning against Parliament. Um, so when I saw him deliberately lounge in that contemptuous pose, which happened while a man, one of the 21 rebels, Dominic Grieve, a very decent figure, a former um, senior figure in a, in a previous conservative government, it was while he was speaking. And Rhys Mogg wanted to convey, he wanted to radiate contempt. Um, I, I saw that and I thought, well, that is the perfect Labour Party or Liberal Democratic Party campaign poster. Is, is this the people? Yeah, it's it's really quite something, uh, which raises a, an important question to all of us here at Deep State Radio who miss having Corey among us all the time. Why on earth would you go back to that country? <laughs> or does it just make does it just make you feel better about the U.S. by comparison? <laughs> uh, it does not make me feel better about the depredations going on in American governance by President Trump and his supporters. It does make me sad uh, to see the great country of Great Britain struggling so much with uh, an, a deeply divided country over this issue. And it also makes me crazy that David Cameron's government didn't have the sense to structure uh, a referendum, which they probably shouldn't have held anyway, uh, in a way that didn't allow a 50-50 split to be the goal line, uh, because that's a lot of the problem here. As no less a source than Thomas Jefferson tells us, great revolution should not be forced on slender majorities. Yeah, well, yeah. There, 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 there is certainly that. Um, Fortunately for you, Rosa, while you're writing your book, you don't have to pay any attention to all of this. Um, I know, thank God. Um, yeah, or anything that's going on in the U.S., which leads me to wonder, are you going to become a, a permanent recluse um, as none of these things I'm show any sign of... it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I am considering it, David. Um, just me, and I'll, I'll import a few ducks and uh, things will be fine. Yeah, there's no duck bond though, right? So there's no place. Well, not exactly. Yet. Not yet, yeah, yet. that could be, that yet. could be your next, your next goal. So, you know, as you, as, as you look at this and, and uh, given that you're a lawyer, it, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting that you have the prime minister of, um, the United Kingdom uh, essentially saying that he is going to violate the will of the parliament. Not only has he done this uh, strange thing of essentially shutting down the parliament for a month in the lead up to this uh, this uh, Brexit uh, hard deadline, um, but the parliament has said he can't actually exit um, without a deal. And he has said subsequent to the parliament saying that, 
that he can exit without a deal. He's just going to do it without paying any attention to what the parliament has said. And this seems to be what the president of the United States is, the same approach, which is to to have complete disregard for the law, that it, that it law is for little people. Um, and I'm just wondering if you if, if there's any um, uh, uh, sense in the legal community that this this uh, that this is actually contagious, that somehow we're in a period in which the rule of law seems less important uh, than in the recent past. I, I think it 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 is and it it does. Um, and I think this is just one part of something we've spoken about frequently on this podcast, which is the um, backlash against globalization, against liberal democracy, which, which I think you know stems from a kind of uh, despair, a sense that you know promises were made that everybody is going to be better off, that you know democracy and prosperity are breaking out all over, that this will bring an end to to conflict between states, will bring an end to civil conflict, everybody's going to get richer and happier and and the failure uh to deliver on those promises i i think created uh both a, a sort of despair and and a cynicism which extends not only to uh willingness of of populations in all over the west and not just in the west you know it, it extends not only to a willingness of those populations to you know, reject uh, uh, moderate political parties in favor of more extremist, more populist, more nationalist political parties and leaders. But I think it also extends to, you know, there's just so much, uh, so much of a sense of, well, what did, what did the rule of law get us? What did democracy get us? What did, what did any of this get us? Um, what did following the rules get us? That there's a willingness to sort of throw a whole lot of babies out with the bathwater, and and it, it it is very scary because obviously, no constructive alternative is is sort of being offered. Uh, it's it's still very much in you know burn it all down mode. But I, and I think that's what it comes from. Can I interject to say that this is the point at which everybody should spool up the video clip of Monty Python's sketch about what did Rome ever do for us? <laughs> exactly. It's perfectly customized for the situation. <laughs> and, and, and so the good news is that, you know, after, after the cities have been sacked and we get a few centuries of, you know, ceaseless conflict and bloodshed, will be absolutely ripe once more for a resurgence of uh, rule-based institutional reform. Uh, yeah, that's a, that is that is good. That is good. I'm just sitting there trying to go through in my head that sketch and that that it's and they gave us aqueducts. That was good. And then <laughs> oh, they gave us a system of roads. No, you have to admit a system of roads was a good thing. Um, that's that's the one, right, Corey? Um, That's exactly the one. All of our our younger deep state radio listeners might want to go and and look up what Monty Python actually was um, uh, before John Cleese, one of its members, became one of Britain's um, leading proto nationalists. I mean, what's going on yeah. with that, Ed? I mean, you know, um, you lost exactly my. Thankfully, my role in life is not to decode what goes on in John Cleese's head. 
Um, but um, I can only guess that, I mean, he was living somewhere in the Caribbean. Um, and I sort of see him as the English nationalist version of Sean Connery becoming a Scottish nationalist. You're sort of living in the Caribbean and getting angrier and angrier about all these foreigners living in, <laughs> in your home country, which is um, like, I'm sure this is just a, a genius, genius comic sketch they've dreamt up and we haven't yet got the joke. Yeah, well, keep, keeping our sense of humor is, is a little bit tough as we go through this. Let me bring up another story that's recently come down the pike, Corey. Um, CNN today reported that during 2017, uh, the CIA removed an asset from Russia um, because it was afraid that the president might not be uh, uh, trustworthy enough with covert derived information to protect this person's life and identity. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know we, we say this every day about every three hours, but in any other administration, this would be a gigantic, shocking scandal. And, and yet here it's kind of like, you know, the White House says, well, CNN shouldn't dare write such a story. Uh, and we move on to the next one. So you are quite right, David, that in any other administration, this would be an outrageous, shocking scandal. It is an outrageous, shocking scandal in this one as well. And we shouldn't let ourselves be desensitized to just how hair-raising a, a fact it is that the president cannot be trusted to protect the lives of people in danger who are making choices for the protection of American citizens. It's genuinely uh, shocking. Smart, the CIA did it, but we are less safe as a result of having to give up the exposure that, that we were getting into Russian decision-making by having a spy uh, so centrally involved. It's not just a terrible scandal, it's making us less safe going forward. Um, yeah, of course, this happened, Rosa, um, uh, shortly after the president took office and within a few months had a meeting with some Russians in his office and handed over some information that the Israelis had given us that had been previously classified. And the president, of course, says, well, he's free to do this. Um, but it does suggest that within the administration, behind the scenes, people are treating this president differently from how they treat other presidents. Um, do you think that can have, you know, negative consequences or is that the right thing to do right now? Well, I think there's no real alternative uh, for those people behind the scenes. I, I mean, I mean, the way our government is structured um, um, in combination with the sort of steady drift uh, of power towards the executive branch, steady sort of accretion of power in the executive branch means that, you know, the president does have the authority to decide to release classified information. The president has the authority to decide he doesn't care if one of our CIA assets in Russia is killed. You know, that it is it is up to him structurally. The, you know, the president has the authority to send American members of the military off to get killed or kill people if he wants. Um, and the checks are largely political rather than legal. Um, the problem, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked uh, with, with our friend Joe Cerencioni about 
uh, nuclear, nuclear weapons strike authority, is that our whole system is premised on the idea that we have a rational president, at least, a president with whom at any given moment many Americans may disagree, but who is at least uh, uh, rational um, and makes rational decisions. And so this incredible power that we have given our president, the power of life and death, uh, uh, not you know over, over millions, not just over individuals, um, um, is now in the hands of someone who is nuts. Um, and, and I, you know, I think the only thing we need to keep reminding ourselves, let's not be surprised by this. There was a, there was a good piece uh, in the Atlantic. Um, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was uh, by a, a conservative critic of Trump's um, making the fairly basic point that we have made many times on this podcast, uh, which is this. This guy is crazy, among other things. He is just crazy. And you know, what crazy people do is they do crazy things and they do crazy, irresponsible, self-destructive uh, things and things that are destructive to others. And that is what they do. And let's stop acting shocked every time it happens or every time we, we learn of another incident in which uh, uh, the president's actions were dangerous to himself or to others or to the United States. You know, this is, is of course, this is not remotely surprising. This is completely consistent with everything we know about Donald Trump. Uh, and I, I am absolutely certain that across the executive branch of the United States government, uh, there are officials scrambling to say, how do we save our, our, the integrity of our agency from this president? And how do we save the lives of our people from this president? How do we prevent this president from damaging the United States and the world even more than he's already doing? Uh, you know, and we, we're seeing that play out even <laughs> whoever would have thought within the, uh, you know, National Weather Service, for God's sake, right now. Um, so no surprise, and I expect that this will continue. Hi, I want to tell you about a podcast that's a new sponsor here for Deep State Radio that we'd like to welcome aboard. It's called The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone or maybe even multiple someones will end up being. Every day at 5 o'clock Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins will catch you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, what the polls are saying, what the latest developments are. It's a, it's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your browser 12 times a day like I do, and that's an underestimate for me. I, I, I go too often to the browser. I think I may need some therapy to break out of that once Trump is out of office. It's like uh, TLDR as a service, for those of you who are not, you know, social media conversant, you know, that TLDR means too long, uh, didn't read. And uh, the idea is to summarize what's going on quickly but to give you what you need to know this election season. So if you want to catch up on what you've missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, well, it may continue for a long time, Ed. You know, The Atlantic also has an article currently in which it is said, and and the president's campaign manager reiterated this, that the plan of the, the, the Trump family is to create a dynasty and to have Trump pass on his presidency to his son or his daughter. And, you know, we, we did have the president's daughter in Latin America these past weeks. She's still there. Um, one day she was dressed as a as a giant lily pad, which I found kind of strange, but she nonetheless thought that was an appropriate way to meet the president of Colombia. Um, and so here is this woman who shouldn't have a clearance, who shouldn't actually have a government job, as our principal representative in Latin America recently at a high level. And maybe she's, you know, seeking to make, a, you know, this sort of Trump monarchy come to life. And, you know, you come from a place where, you know, a uh, hereditary monarchy passed on from one nut to another uh, is a tradition. So uh, how do you think the U.S. will adapt to that reality? Um, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> David, Ivanka that was Jared, such an elegant setup. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's, it's, it's hard to know where to begin with the answer. The, the elegance ended at the end of David's question. Um because, you know, I mean, I, I, I can believe anything. Um, and I certainly know that um, Ivanka has made her ambitions aware. Um, her father is ambitious for her, um, the way he's taken over these G20 summits, the way he has her briefing the world on his meetings with the leaders of Japan and India and others. Um, he's elevating his daughter. His daughter is the one he chose to have with him and son-in-law in the White House, um, the two sons, I don't know which of them is Fredo or which of them is whatever the kids are called on succession. Um, that wonderful, that wonderful drama about a dysfunctional billionaire family in New York, um, which of them um, Eric and Donald Jr. are, but Donald Jr. has clearly got political ambitions too. Um, and he's got a following too, uh, probably a, a much larger following given what a sort of Red in tooth and claw campaigner he is for his father than, than Ivanka has. So we've got two at least Trump offspring with with political ambitions, and a father whose you know ego is limitless can never be can never be sated, um, and who will want to 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 continue to realise his ambitions and protect his legacy through one of them. So nothing is incredible, um, everything is believable, and you know what we were discussing earlier about we can we can both see the same thing uh, you know i can see i can see this man called donald jr who's been brought up never to worry about money never to care about people without money in fact to have some kind of uh, sort of curling lip contempt for people without money who goes and boasts sends out boastful pictures of him with dead game that he shot in africa um who is involved with all kinds of nasty alt-right um, people on the internet and in real life. Um, uh, I can see that. Somebody else looking at him can see somebody who's standing up for America. I, I, I you know, at some point lose my, lose my faith in my ability to judge the democratic response um, that um, two people seeing the same thing, the conflicting response they'll have. And I'm, I might be over-conflating um, with the point I made at the beginning of this podcast about Boris, because what I saw yesterday, last week, was a disaster, a catastrophe. 
for Britain's democracy, for Britain's self-respect, for Britain's place in the world and its leverage with the world. And yet he went up in the polls. Well, yeah, we, we have that experience here on a fairly regular basis. I think to our credit, um, it took um, Britain uh, just under 90 years to get from William the Conqueror to the beginning of the House of Plantagenet. I know you're, this is your favorite group of, of slightly <laughs> demented leaders. Um, and it's, take, and it's taken us people. 240 years to get to our own House of Plantagenet. Um, you know, speaking of <laughs> crazy, as Rosa was, and, and, and the worrisome consequences of all of this, another development over the past few days, um, Corey, has been uh, with regard to Afghanistan. The president revealed um, that he was planning on having those nice folks from the Taliban over to Camp David um, to talk about a deal, uh, and that after the, an attack took place, um, uh, in which a U.S. soldier was killed, he canceled this, although I think he may have canceled it because some people said, you know, this deal isn't going to look so good. Um, but then his secretary of state went on, on television over the weekend and said, well, you know, we're still well on our way to a deal. And then today, as we're recording this broadcast, the president has apparently said the deal is dead to him. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and so... I guess my question is, I don't understand. Please explain this to me. <laughs> What's uh, what? So What's your inability to understand it is what <laughs> a psychologist would call the appropriate response to stimulus. Namely, you are accurately reading the data you are seeing uh, because the, you know, the, the president... Uh, came into office and his secretary of state and secretary of defense were loudly crowing that, uh, you know, they were going to reverse the Obama administration's mistake of having time, a timetable for withdrawal from the war, that we were going to go to, you know, a, a terms base. We needed to accomplish our objectives and then they would withdraw. And the president's clearly bored with being a wartime commander-in-chief and seems to think that ending the war in Afghanistan will be his big foreign policy achievement since, you know, his Middle East peace plan isn't really coming together the way he thought. And all those great trade deals turn out to be, you know, math class turns out to be hard. Um, and, and so he was going to deliver this this big uh, achievement, and it does not appear to have occurred to the President of the United States that inviting the Taliban to Camp David the week of September 11th might leave a bad taste in many Americans' mouths, and in particular, those Americans who have fought the post-9-11 wars on behalf of our country. Um, and Evidently, the Secretary of State, or no, evidently, uh, the National Security Advisor and the Vice President are now madly leaking to the press that they thought this was a bad idea. Uh, and if we only had an interagency policy vetting process and a president attentive enough to care about the consequences of his choices in foreign and defense policy, that could have been aired and decided in a responsible way, but none of those things are what we have right now. 
So you had Zal Khalilzad and evidently the military commander from Afghanistan in eight separate rounds of negotiations with the Taliban. And then you had the president pull a rabbit out of his hat and say, no, I need to be the one who makes the deal. So let's give everybody to Camp David. Do we really think the Taliban leadership are going to get on a flight to the United States and not believe it's going to be diverted straight to Guantanamo? Like, just nobody thought through even the basic elements of what a bad idea this was. So uh, give the president no credit for canceling what was a stupid idea nobody should have ever let get to the president's desk, except that it came from the president's desk. Well, that is a problem in this administration. I am tempted to spend the next five or 10 minutes trying to figure out whether the desire to get out of Afghanistan without a deal um, is uh, so great that we, we're going to be soon compelled to call it the Afghan exit or the Talib exit um, or some variation on, 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 on Brexit. But underneath all of this, Rosa, um, is... There's another thing that seems to have come up uh, in the past couple of months often, and that is there is no national security process. In fact, the national security advisor doesn't even get consulted on these things. Um, Decisions get made in the White House. They get made in the State Department. They get made everywhere else. Um, And John Bolton, you know, when the president meets with North Korea, he's sent to Mongolia. And when Deals like this one are 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 put forward. Um, there's no consultation with him, uh, and it raises the you know the the the, the question of uh, have we ever seen a a more dysfunctional national security process um, in the modern era of the United States? And I was just wondering what you thought. So I'm I'm happy to say that I am only a veteran of two administrations, national security processes, and both were dysfunctional in their own special ways, like Tolstoy's unhappy families. But it's true that Donald Trump's uh, national security uh, non-process sort of takes the dysfunction to a a radical new level. Um, But I think I I once wrote an article years ago uh, for foreign policy where I argued that we should just treat this as a, as a fascinating science experiment. Um, it's an experiment in having no government, basically, and, and we just have to see what happens. If, because really, I mean, we shouldn't even say there's a national security decision-making process in the Trump administration that there isn't. Um, there, this really is a kind of experiment in what if you just don't have a process? What if you put a crazy guy in the Oval Office and then you get a bunch of other people uh, you know, jockeying for his attention and love, uh, which, you know, which is also remains mysterious to me that they're willing to do that. And a bunch of other people trying to batten down the hatches and hoping he can't do too much harm. You know, what prevails, the crazy or the uh, battening down of the hatches? Um, so, so no, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's terrible. You know, there is no, there is no process that is, perfect. And I was actually, I was thinking about this. Um, I'm, you all know, uh, uh, Les Gelb, um, former president of the council on foreign relations and a veteran of multiple, uh, U S administrations died, um, uh, a short time ago. And Les famously noted that all foreign policy decision-making is bad. 
you know, that, that, that nobody really knows what they're doing. Everybody's always having to make untested and untestable assumptions and act with imperfect information. Um, you know, so on the one hand, you know, the, the norm in American foreign policy, national security decision-making, I think, I think Les Gelb was absolutely right, um, is that it is far less coherent uh, rational a process than we have often pretended it is. But now we simply have an experiment in just essentially, you know, I, throwing things up in the air and seeing what happens. Um, so, you know, either we'll survive it or we won't. And um, I hope you're all registered to vote. <laughs> yes, I, I, I certainly hope that's true. I, I think, you know, can somebody's... Can I pile on on that point, David? I'm sorry, well, can I pile well, sure. on that point, David? Piling on pro, pro or con? I pass pro, that is pro-register to vote. Oh. Uh, I passed briefly through Washington over the weekend and went to the exhibit on, on uh, women's suffrage at the National Portrait Gallery. And it talked all about, you know, the, the uh, radical notion that you know, uh, women should be treated as equal citizens in the United States and how that really came to a head during World War One when President Wilson was talking about making the world safe for democracy. And the closing of the exhibit, uh, they had a panel encouraging you to register to vote and uh, giving you the, the little uh, scanner so that you can automatically do it on your phone as you're walking out of the exhibit. All of which is a long wind up to say that the right repudiation to this notion of a dynasty and to the depredations that we are seeing by the Trump administration is everybody go register three people you know to vote and encourage them on election day to turn out because repudiation at the ballot box is ultimately the best way to do this. I think it is, you know, although it does raise a question about where else repudiation can take place. And I'll give you an example, and I raise this quite sensitively because I know there may be multiple opinions about it uh, from, from, from you guys. But um, I think Ed brought up in a piece that, that, that he addressed recently the question of what is the responsibility of people who are in the Trump administration, who see erratic behavior or see dangerous behavior, um, who see a dysfunctional system, to call it out. And where does duty and loyalty and traditional standards end um, and this begin? And of course, there are some examples that we can pick from on this. There, there was the New York Times uh, column by an anonymous person saying that this was uh, screwed up and, 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 a, and a problem. And uh, Ed made reference to the fact that uh, former Secretary of Defense Mattis has had had to grapple with these issues in, in writing his book. Um, and, you know, he had come up with his own calculation about what his obligations were um, in this regard. And I just thought I'd, I'd turn to you, Ed, because there are a lot of people who every day are seeing Donald Trump behave in an erratic way, behave in a way that puts security at risk, behave in a way that makes the government more dysfunctional uh, or alienates allies or embraces enemies or whatever. Um, but I, I think for the most part, 
senior officials have not called him out for this. And and I'm wondering to what extent you think there's a duty to do that that has not been fully met. Ed. I, I think um, that I fully understand uh, why people have spent their careers in uniform um, or indeed working you know, for the FBI or, or um, as public servants, but particularly in military uniform, um, have a very, very strict um, division, um, mill civ um, division, civ mill division, um, and that it's deeply ingrained um, in them. And I understand why um, uh, former secretary and former general, retired General Mattis, you know, uh, does so too. Um, I, I guess I was disappointed in him because in his book, he does criticize President Obama and some of the um, strategic decisions Obama took when General Mattis was serving him in uniform. Um, but he refrains from criticizing Donald Trump, um, whom he served as a civilian in a political role as head of Pentagon. And that seems to me to be back to front. It seems to me to be selective, a selective application of that doctrine that is the wrong way around. Um, um, the other point I'd make is I, I understand that, you know, people who do these careers um, and take great risks and with sacrifice to, um, you know, are, 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 you know deserve, deserve a lot of credit for having been in public service for many decades. Um, and I think are probably ill-equipped uh, towards the end of their careers to, if not to recognize, to act upon the recognition that the chief national security threat to your country is not coming from enemy soldiers across the horizon, um, or terrorists for that matter, but from the White House. Um, and that there is just no rule book for that one. Um, and um, I still retain hope that Mattis and others, I mean, I'm focusing on Mattis, but we could be talking about plenty of other people here, including Rex Tillerson, for example, and of course, Bob Mueller, um, that there is plenty of time for him to come to a different conclusion than the one he's come with this book. Um, we've got we've got another 15 months before the next general election, and it's the most important, I believe, in our lifetimes. And I believe that people like Mattis can have a disproportionate role in helping Americans see what the threat is from a Trump second term. What, uh, Corey, again, without specific reference to any case, what 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 do you think the code should be? I think a sense of loyalty to a president doing constitutional danger and even policy danger to the country is misplaced. Rosa, do you have a view on this? No, I was just going to say I, I, I agree heartily with Ed's analysis. I mean, on Mattis, there was this one little teaser uh, in George Packer's uh, interview with him in which, you know, at the very end of this whole series of, of conversations in which Packer repeatedly tries to get Mattis to dish out a little bit of dirt, you know, Packer keeps saying things like, well, you know, but don't you think that this is a little irresponsible? And Mattis says things like, oh, look, I think that's a bird up there. Um, you know, finally, towards the very end, uh, you know, Mattis says, look, you know, I think I owe this duty of loyalty, but that duty does not last forever suggesting that he may, maybe, intends at some point to be a little bit more frank, but 
but no, I, I think it's a it's a disappointment and it does a disservice to the country. You know, much as I understand that impulse towards towards loyalty and discretion, you know, this as we've been saying all through this podcast, this is this is not this is not a normal presidency. This is not a normal situation. This is not simply a matter of you know disagreements about uh, uh, policy decisions in in the context of hey everybody's doing their best and sometimes people make mistakes. This is this is an issue of uh, a president who's really out of control in a very very dangerous way. And in that context, I think that uh, norms about loyalty need to take second place. Norms about loyal norms about personal loyalty. Uh, loyalty to, you know, a president, uh, a boss, et cetera, need to take second place to norms of loyalty to country and constitution. Yeah, well, an excellent point. And, you know, in the context of of our conversation here and in context of upcoming shows, uh, it also goes back to the point that Corey was making and that you, Rosa, were making, which is that we're heading into an election season. And we saw in 2016 what happens when uh, incomplete information, distorted information, uh, disinformation come into an election campaign, uh, they influence the result. Uh, and there are a lot of people who have seen things that have taken place in the course of this administration that are signs of dysfunction or worse, that are, that are threats to the United States, who could elaborate on that, who could offer testimony to the effect that this is this is a problem, and whose views would have a lot of impact um, because, in fact, uh, they'd been on the inside and seen it, and uh, and it's really going to be a, a, a significant factor in how that election turns out, to to the degree to which these people actually speak out or don't, live up to this responsibility or don't. Uh, we, of course, are going to go and try and explore these things in the upcoming months. We're now back to school. We're energized um, uh, and uh, uh, well-rested from the summer. And so we encourage you all to uh, to come, you know, join us again each week. This week, in addition to this podcast, of course, we've got our, our Thursday podcast. Um, and, and we're also going to have a conversation on National Security Magazine with Representative Ted Lieu. Uh, who can talk to us a little bit about the uh, the new approach that the House Judiciary Committee is taking with regard to the issue of impeachment, which really represents a, a, a ratcheting up of, of of pressure, and I think is going to suggest um, a, a kind of a new intensity to a number of these stories. Um, and of course, testimony before committees like that is one way that these these views can come out. Uh, and, of course, we'll be doing that every week. And if you want to help us do that, go become a member. Go to uh, the DSRnetwork.com, sign up. It's not very expensive. It's, you know, the cost of a latte a week or something like that to go and join us and get all the benefits, but also to help us grow. Um, and uh, you can also listen to, uh, you know, our other podcasts and see the other content we've got. Um, in the meantime, welcome back, guys, from your various um, retreats and and Rosa, good luck in your current retreat. Um, uh, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. And thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network. 
a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.